Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. 2,000 years ago, in a remote part of the world, an obscure carpenter turned rabbi walked on the shore of a lake where there were two fishermen, uh, very ordinary men, named Peter and Andrew. He said to them, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. Then he came to two more fishermen, two brothers, James and John, with that same cryptic invitation, follow me. And they left their boats and followed him. One day he came to a man named Levi, a tax collector, a despised profession in that day. And he said those same two words, follow me. Levi got up, left his booth, left his profession, left his whole way of life and followed this man, Jesus. And we wonder in these stories, at least I do, what else Jesus might have said or what else these people might have known about him. But the writers of scripture don't tell us because they only want to focus on this single command, on those two words. Jesus, whatever you think of him, walked around issuing what might be called the grand invitation. Follow me. And sometimes people would say, yes. And for them, it meant things like high adventure and learning and poverty and suffering and frequent failure, but meaning and hope, and then eventually, ultimately, death. You know, everyone's going to die. The only real question is if you found anything worth dying for. Sometimes he would issue this invitation and people would say no. Maybe that meant they chose uh, security or comfort instead. We don't know because we're, we've never heard from these people again. Since the beginning of this year, January of 2022, we've been on this journey through what has been the most impactful sermon in history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave it on a little mountain. And all of these months, from January until now, have pointed toward this moment, toward this message, toward this day for you and me. At the end of Jesus's sermon, having announced what he called the good news, that life with God, in the presence of God, in the favor of God, in God's care, in God's forgiveness is now available to anyone. It's available to you. It's available to people the world had written off. Having brilliantly described what it is that makes someone a truly good person from the inside, having explained why in the care of his magnificent father, you simply have nothing ultimately to worry about, nothing to be afraid of. Having articulated how it is really the love of God expressed through the golden rule that is the foundation of reality that is most real, Jesus devotes the last portion of his sermon to clarifying for people the great decision of life. Will you become his disciple or not? Now, I wanna take any mystery out of this word disciple because a lot of people people think that there's something mysterious about it. Uh, Many people think the job of the church is to make Christians and they think that 
uh, a Christian is a person who holds certain beliefs or particular uh, beliefs about Jesus. And that as long as they affirm the right beliefs or trust in those beliefs in the right way, uh, they get to be forgiven and they have to be allowed into heaven when they die. And that's the difference between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. So they never deal with the fundamental choice, which is, do I actually intend to do everything this man Jesus taught? Do I intend to follow him? Jesus never said to anyone, become a Christian. The word Christian is actually used in the Bible only three times. And then it's just like a, a nickname for disciple. The word disciple is used in the Bible 269 times. And simply it means a learner or a student or a, an apprentice or a follower. There's no vagueness. There's, there's nothing mysterious about it. If you're a learner, you know it. I mean, if you want to learn how to play golf or you want to learn how to speak another language or you want to learn how to do brain surgery, then you become a student of someone through either lessons or YouTube or videos or a book or something. You choose in an appropriate way to be with them, to learn from them how to do what they do, how to become like them. And you know you're doing this or not. You know, if someone asks you, are you learning how to do brain surgery? Like no one says, well, I'm not really sure. Let me think about it. Maybe. <laughs> you may not be a good student, but you know if you're a student or not a student. And so the question is, are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you chosen above all else to follow this man, to identify with him, to do what he says, to live as if he would live if he were you. Now, I wanna share with you something that's real important as you consider this. Uh, being a disciple doesn't mean being a good disciple. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, you can be a really bad disciple. I mean, you can be really bad at discipling. It doesn't bother Jesus at all. I mean, half the time we see Jesus with his disciples and he's correcting them for what terrible disciples they are. Oh, you of little faith, he says to them, uh, could you not stay awake and pray with me for one hour? Like, what were you arguing about? Who's the greatest? You will deny me three times, he said to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. How long must I put up with you? Have I been with you so long and you do not know who I am? I mean, they were terrible at being disciples, but it didn't matter. You may be terrible, at being a disciple, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Jesus accepts you as his disciple, good or bad, simply on the basis of the fact that you've chosen to be with him, to learn from him how to become like him. And so Jesus says the fundamental decision you face if you wanna be a disciple of his is will you actually do what he says to do? Will you obey him? I mean, that's a word we don't like to hear in our day. Obedience is often thought to be kind of a bad word in our day. It's generally not a compliment to be called obedient. Uh, teachers will praise kids by saying to parents, you know, your child's a leader, your child's a risk taker, your child's gifted or talented. I mean, the Bay Area where we live, obedience is so poorly thought of that one of the great compliments in our day is to be disruptive. I heard about a teacher who told a set of parents, your child is disruptive. And they like high-fived each other. They didn't realize it wasn't intended to be a compliment. 
obedience school is for dogs. A friend of mine told me, you know, he was taking his hunting dog to remedial obedience school. And I, I immediately wanted to know, like, do they have those for humans? When we think of obedience, we think of someone who is robotic or compliant or a, a weak-willed conformist. Of course, Jesus didn't want any of those. Jesus didn't say, I have come that you may uh, be a weak-willed conformist and do whatever you're told by anyone for no good reason at all. A disciple is someone who seeks to obey Jesus with creativity and with imagination and initiative and discernment and boldness, joyfully, not grudgingly, as the power of God to transform gets into what the Apostle Paul calls the member of the members of your body, in your little hands, in what you do, in your little feet and where they go, in your little eyes and what they see, in your little mouth and what it speaks, into the habits that mostly make you, you. And when this happens, obedience, life, creativity, joy, and love just kind of flow out of you quite naturally with constant humility as you realize the only way to live in the kingdom of God is through receiving daily nourishment from the word of God and the spirit of God, which is a reprieve from the train wreck that would otherwise be your ego and your sin. I mean, with great courage, for it will often mean standing in non-compliance under great pressure. With moments of great inspiration when you're gripped by the realization that the only explanation for Jesus's unprecedented impact is that he is the most magnificent human being who has ever lived. And it's the greatest opportunity for any human being who has ever come along to be his friend, to identify with him, to stand alongside him, to be taken up into whatever he is doing in this great world that he created. And that no matter what else happens in your life, you cannot miss that. So at the end of this great talk, Jesus presses urgently for a decision from every listener to this grand invitation. He says, you're at a great crossroads, whether you know it or not. And you will either choose the narrow gate, that is obedience to him in all things. I will seek to understand and with his help, do whatever he says to do above everything else. Or you will choose the broad gate. And that's just simply anything else. You will either become a good tree that's flowing with so much inner goodness, that ceaseless flow of like thoughts and feelings and intentions and desires inside of you that no one else can see will become so good. They will eventually become words and actions and generosity that will make other people when they look at you say, what a good God God must be to do something like that. Or you'll rot an ego Self, pride, smallness, pettiness, greed, bitterness, and anger will make you worthless to yourself or to anyone else. You stand at a great crossroads. This is Jesus. And now these are his final words in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, 
and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, in the eyes of Jesus, there's no good reason not to do what he said to do because what he tells us to do is really the best way to live life. I mean, rightly understood, it's the best way to live life. It's not compliance. It's not mechanical. It's not a rule book. I mean, it requires discernment and judgment. It means becoming a person radiant with goodness. It's just the best. I mean, there's no good reason not to do it. Imagine you applied to and you got accepted at the greatest company in the world and you were to report to the CEO. I mean, he's not just a brilliant leader, but he's a creative wizard and he's deeply invested in your personal development. And he says to you, I want you to work on this project and I want you to develop this competence and I want you to build this team and I want you to care for this client so that you can become a magnificent contributor. And you were to say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't intend to do what you tell me to do. I mean, I want to be on staff. I want to get a paycheck. I want to have an office. I want to receive benefits, but you know, I don't want to do what you tell me to do. How long would you last there? Imagine if you got selected to be a part of the greatest team in the history of athletic competition. The coach is not just a strategic genius and an inspirational figure. He's deeply committed to seeing you excel. He says, I want you to do these drills and I want you to watch these videos and I want you to study these playbooks and practice these exercises and serve this team. And you say, no, thanks. You know, I want to be on the roster. I want to wear a championship ring. I want to have the uniform. I want to get the endorsements. I want to, you know, I want the banner to belong to me, but I don't intend to do what you tell me to do. I mean, how long would you last on the greatest team in the history of the world? which by the way is the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> now, imagine standing before Jesus one day and trying to explain to him why you didn't ever fully intend to do all that he said to do. Now, maybe you think you've got a good reason for that, but people far wiser than me in this way of life will tell you selective obedience will simply not usher you into the kind of life Jesus has for you. Selective obedience just won't. There's a line in the big book of AA that I love. I mean, these are people who know they stand at a great crossroads between life and death. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. To make our condition clear, to make this decision as urgent and unmistakable as possible, as he often does, Jesus tells a story. And these are actually two little stories that we've just read. And the way to understand them is you kind of set them side by side and look at what's similar in each story. And then you look at what's uh, different, what the variable is. And where it's different, when you locate the difference, that's when you get the point. And that's what we'll get to in just a moment. Bilbo Baggins from the Lord of the Rings series said to his friend Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. 
You step into the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. While perhaps not the original intention of the quote, this silly and popular quote makes me think of how journeys are often started with one big step. You know, a step out of the comfort zone, a step that's often propelled by a little bit of fear or adrenaline. You know, a step that launches a journey as great and as vast as the one found in the Lord of the Rings. The disciples in the early parts of the Gospels took such a step. You know, they knew very little about what their journey would bring, but they said yes when Jesus said, follow me. You know, we know a thing or two about steps like this. The middle schooler who takes the step towards their crush to ask them for a dance. The step a high school graduate takes as they walk across the graduation stage and onto their new college campus. The step we take into new jobs. Steps taken that bring us into a new journey. Steps like these aren't reserved for life movements or fanciful journeys. You know, we, we also have these steps in our faith. These steps are seen throughout the Bible. Moses taking a step into the Red Sea. Noah taking a step onto an ark. Esther taking a step into, into a king's house. You know, Paul taking a step into a boat. The disciples taking a step out of their boats. Steps of fear and exhilaration. You know, steps followed by failure and forgiveness. Steps of faith. No matter where we find ourselves on our faith journey, God's calling you to take a step. Maybe that step is to ask that question that you know, ruminates in your mind, the question that is keeping you from God. Maybe that step is to truly dedicate yourself to spending more time with God. Maybe that step is to serve or to lead a small group. Maybe that step is to heal from bitterness and pain. You know, who knows what that step is, but each of us is being drawn to take a step. In a minute, Matt's gonna dive deeper into the story of the houses on the sand, ending with a challenge. As he speaks and as you leave today and walk throughout the week, I encourage you to meditate on your step. What is God drawing you to deepen your discipleship walk? You know, what's the road God's calling you to this week? Let's rejoin Matt to hear about the builders, their houses, and what that means for our journey of discipleship. All right, so Jesus tells two little stories, and we need to look at what's similar and what's different in each story. And the difference is where we discover the point. Uh, in these two stories, everyone builds a house, and that's not different. I mean, you could replace the word house with the word life. Uh, you might put it like this. Everyone is forming a character. Everyone is constructing a soul, uh, badly or beautifully, on purpose or by accident, with God's help or on your own. Everyone builds a house. Everyone builds a life. And we do this mostly by the choices we make, most of which we uh, don't really even think about. Like, how will I spend my time? What words will I speak? What are the thoughts that will occupy my mind and where will they come from? What will I do with my money? What people will form me and shape me? What will my life be about day after day after day after day? Very often we deal with this by trying to put decisions off, you know. Uh, should I work on my marriage that I know at some level is in trouble? Should I deal with this habit that I know is a deep flaw? Should I care for my body? Should I address this drinking problem that at some level I know is very serious? Then not to decide becomes its own decision with its own consequences. That's just the way it is. Everyone builds a house. You can't avoid this. I cannot abdicate responsibility for this. I can't put this on my parents or my peers or my boss or my family. It's built mostly on not what has happened to me, 
which is often what we focus on, but on those tiny little decisions that I'm making or not making all the time. Everyone builds a house. A second constant is everyone faces a storm. Uh, this is not a story about storm avoidance. Uh, we wish it was. We wish we uh, could be able to like go someplace where there's better weather. I used to live in Chicago. Uh, now I live in California. Uh, where is there better weather, Chicago or California? <laughs> California, right? Thank God for California. But this is not a story about leaving Chicago and moving to California. There's no way to do storm avoidance in life. Not by having more money or by being real smart, not even by uh, having a lot of faith in God and praying real hard. Jesus says the storm will come. One of my best friends in college was married with three boys and he was the kind of guy that never met a stranger. I mean, he's, he's always had, he always had time to talk, you know, just a fun guy, he loved to laugh, just a fun guy to be with. And we both moved to California after attending college and graduate school in Chicago. And he was also a pastor. And so we shared this passion and love for, for God and for his church. And he would invite me to come teach at his events and I would invite him to come teach at mine. And, and so we spent a lot of time together on camps and retreats and events. And consequently, we shared a fairly deep relationship. And one day when he was just 42 years old, he called me with the news that he was diagnosed with cancer. And he told me it was not an aggressive cancer, so he was gonna be able to do treatments and remain working. About a month later, I got a call from his wife who let me know Ron had died. The storm came. And for me, while I miss Ron, uh, I mean, the storm came 10 years ago and it's passed. But for Jen and her three boys, the storm was very painful and it lasted for quite a long time. Everyone faces a storm. Somehow they surprise us though, like we think that we shouldn't experience the storm. We think that we're too smart or too strong. You see, the strength of the storm will reveal the foundation of the house. Now you should know that in Jesus' story, he's not just talking about problems in general. He, ha he has something in particular in mind. In the Bible, a storm is often used as an image of the judgment of God, how God doesn't intend to let this world go on being messed up. He will disrupt it. He will set things right. The story of Noah and the storm and the, the flood, if you remember this, is an expression of the judgment of God on a messed up world, a wicked world. That's the idea behind Jesus' storm in these two stories. The writers of scripture say every human being is appointed once to die. Like whatever you think about this, every human being is appointed to die. I mean, you didn't get here because you chose to. And it is appointed that you will die and then you will face the judgment of God. Like I will be accountable to God for my life. And so will you. So everyone builds a house and everyone faces the storm. Now, the variable in this story is the foundation that you build your life on. You will either build your life on obedience to Jesus, identifying with him and by grace, doing what he says with his help, or you will, in your attitudes, in your words, in your actions, in your relationships, and with your money, do something else. So what is your choice? And I need to tell you this, half measures avail us nothing. 
See, my problem is I would prefer half measures. I'd like a little surrender, you know, when I feel like it. I'd like a little devotion. I'd like a little generosity. I'd like a little help from God when I need it and a little distance from God when I want it. But you can't live in a half house. It's striking that when Jesus describes these two people, he doesn't say, here's a story about a good man and an evil man. He says, there is a wise man and a foolish man. And Jesus knew all about this. We don't usually choose to be evil. Life just kind of happens. And parents understand this. You know, when kids do something they shouldn't do, something destructive or infuriating, you know, like something foolish, parents almost always ask them the same stupid question. Why? You know, why did you do this foolish thing? Why did you cut your sister's hair until she was bald in order to make a little nest for birdies in a styrofoam cup? Why did you shove Flintstone vitamins up your brother's nose and leave them there until we had to take him to the ER to get an x-ray to find out he had Flintstone vitamins up his nose? Why did you stick a glass light bulb in your mouth that was so big you could not open your mouth wide enough to get it out again? Why? Like, what were you thinking? And parents always ask this stupid question. And children always respond with the same answer. I don't know. I mean, it just seemed like a good idea. It just happened. Why did you build your house on the sand? I don't know. It just happened. You see, no one gets married and plans on getting a divorce. No one meets someone at the office and plans on having an affair. No one has a child and plans to neglect them or wreck them or hurt them. No one goes out into the world and plans on being greedy or selfish or a racist or just not caring about human need and spending all of their money on themselves. No one plans to go through life bitter, joyless, in despair. No one plans to go to hell. It just happens. So rock or sand? Follow or not follow? This is the great commitment that God sets before every one of us today through Jesus. It's important that this commitment, if it's made, be made soberly and clearly and not in a moment of uh, temporary emotion. I mean, that happens sometimes in churches, but uh, when that happens, when that emotion fades, the commitment fades too. So Jesus' advice on this, given in the Gospel of Luke, when he tells another story about a little building project, is count the cost. Before you decide, count the cost as best you can. And so I just want to give you a moment to do that. Really, there are two costs to count. One of them is the cost of discipleship. And that's a wonderful phrase from a great Christian writer by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'd ask you right now, in this moment, to... Uh, count the cost of being a disciple. There will be a cost. What does it mean for me to surrender my will to Jesus? What does it mean for me to lay down my ego, my reputation? Very often there will be something in particular, a habit or a relationship, something you will have to give up. Maybe it's around money. Maybe it's around sexuality. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's words, maybe it's a relationship, it's often this way for people. Now the cost is not that I will just try grudgingly every day really hard through my willpower to obey Jesus's rules. 
The idea is that I identify, I identify with him and through his grace, I arrange my life now around practices and relationships and rhythms through which I receive true goodness and life and grace from the heavenly father. Of course, it's a lot like getting married or having a child where there's a lot that you don't know at the beginning, but as best you can, you count the cost of being a disciple for you. And then much less often talked about, there's a cost of non-discipleship. What is the price you will pay if you don't follow Jesus? For me, that life would be a crushing burden of chronic disappointment, aloneness, isolation, and enslavement to ego, desire, image, and reputation. Just a soap opera every day. Fear, greed, fear, greed, fear, greed. You know, will I get what I want? And then despair and a meaningless death. For me, the cost of discipleship is exceedingly small compared to the cost of non-discipleship. Now, this counting of the cost lies before every one of us. And with this clearly before you right now comes the question of decision. Will you follow this man? You know, when Jesus was teaching, something happened deep in the souls of the people who were listening to him. I mean, something that may be happening for you right now. I mean, God just works this way. I know he does. Your heart starts pounding and your mind starts racing and something inside of you says, this is it. I mean, this is what I've been looking for my whole life long, but I didn't know it. I mean, to be cleansed and forgiven of all my guilt and regret and the stupid stuff that I've done uh, through grace that's poured out on me because of what Jesus did on the cross and his sacrificial death. I mean, to know God, to have a life that has something beyond just worry and fear, to not be a slave to all the desire for sex or safety or money or image or reputation. I mean, to be a part of God's plan in this great world, to, to have confidence beyond death. I mean, I must have this. I would rather have what this man has and give up everything else in the world than to have everything there is in the world and give up this man. And so I've made up my mind. I'll pay whatever the price is. I'll do whatever he says. I'll go wherever he wants. I'll be what he says I ought to be. Those he called to follow him, they would leave the crowd and they would become his disciple. They would become a follower of Jesus. They would identify with him. They would love him. They would walk through life as his friend. And they would do this imperfectly, of course. Have you done that? Or have you not done that? Where do you stand? We're gonna have a little time for you to count the cost and talk to God about this. Again, not am I a Christian or am I a believer or will I get to heaven, but have I become his disciple? We're gonna put a statement on the screen now that might help you with this. These words are an expression of this decision. I am making a decision to be a disciple of Jesus. I commit to studying his life and to learn from him how to live life like him. And we'll just have a moment or two of silence and prayer now before Michaela and the team lead us in a closing song. Maybe you made this decision. Maybe it was a long time ago, but it would be good for you to write those words on a card and maybe uh, sign it as a way of affirming, this is what I'm doing with my life. 
And you might want to keep that in your Bible or on your desk or wherever that might help you if you see it. And if this wouldn't help you, well, don't worry about it. Maybe you're new to exploring faith and you've never thought about this as an option. Maybe you want to write those words on a card and take some time to think about it. And eventually, if you're ready to make this decision, then just sign that card as a way of making this decision and commitment to God. And maybe you want have, to have someone uh, sign it as well as a witness. Maybe that would serve you well. Maybe you're ready to make this decision today. Maybe you've thought of yourself as a Christian and a believer, but you've never gotten really clear on, yes, I mean, to obey him is my priority above everything else. If it would help you to sign that card in the next few moments, we'll do that and put a date on it. And if you want that to be uh, witnessed, maybe have a close friend or a family member sign it as a witness or bring it to Blue Oaks on Sunday and I would be happy to sign it. And if that's not an option for you, well, send it to me and I'll sign it as a witness and send it back to you. You see, for all these months, we've been listening to these amazing words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And now this is like this joyful moment for us now. We're devoting ourselves to doing exactly what Jesus asked, to giving our most honest responses. And so just take a moment, take a moment right now and just look at these words. Maybe bow your head and close your eyes if you want to. Maybe just talk to God. Talk to Jesus today. Give him your response as honestly as you can to this grand invitation that he gives to us to follow him. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.